Welcome back, listeners. This is Richard, founder of Short-Term Rental University and Airbnb Superhost. I'm honored today to have Clint Coons, who is the founding partner of Anderson Business Advisors, and he's going to walk us through things that we should be thinking about running our short-term business in order to minimize taxes, maximize asset protection, and think like business people. So let's get started. Welcome to the STRU Podcast your number one online hosting community, helping you achieve your goals through short-term rental investing. Now, here's your host, Richard Furtick. Thank you very much, Clint. I really appreciate you being here and helping us. I know this is like a tax filing deadline. March 15th is the S-Corps and partnership deadline. So anybody listening to this, you probably have filed yours. But Clint, uh, really appreciate you being here. And by way of introduction, Clint Coons is a founder and CEO of Anderson Advisors and uh, an attorney and an avid real estate investor. So while I've done a very light touch of what it is that you do, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your real estate investments, and your firm, Anderson Advisors, please. Yeah, so so at Anderson, um, we specialize in working with real estate investors all across the country. And I get this you know, a lot from individuals saying, well, what makes you different at Anderson than my local attorney? Well, it comes down to that experience. I mean, we have probably over 14,000 clients across the United States, and we take the approach that not only do we want to look at it from the legal standpoint, we also incorporate in, as you just brought up, the tax standpoint as well, because so many real estate investors, they go to their CPA or they go to their attorney and they receive accurate information. And I often refer to this as a three-legged stool. Most people operate on the two-legged principle. That is, you have tax and asset protection, and they don't understand the business component of what people are doing. And so oftentimes, real estate investors are given accurate advice, but it's not really relevant to their investing or what they're trying to accomplish in their life. And so at Anderson, I would say that really makes us unique in that, as you stated, I'm an avid real estate investor. I have over 100 properties across the United States, commercial, residential. I used to flip properties in the Las Vegas market. So I've pretty much done a lot, you know, as much as there is you can, can do in real estate investing. And if I haven't done it, I have clients that, that have done these deals. And so there's this collective knowledge at Anderson that really helps our clients take their investing to a different level. And, you know, my background, yeah, I'm an attorney, but I really don't see myself as an attorney. Uh, it's something that I did. Uh, at first, when I started out, I wanted to be a framer or eventually a contractor. And so when I was in college, that's all I did is I framed. And then it was construction slowdown, and I found myself doing pickup work out here in Seattle, Washington in November. It's pouring down rain. I said, this really sucks. You know, I don't feel like doing this any longer. So I, I went on and I finished up my, got my degree and then I went into law school. And when I came out of law school, I knew right away that having grown up and seen what can happen to investors, because uh, my father was a real estate investor, he still is, uh, I realized that I wanted to take a different path. I didn't want to become the traditional attorney where you sit back and I would say some instances you create problems. I wanted to make sure that uh, people are protected and they're doing it the right way because of that misinformation that so many people get. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I've worked in my prior life in finance, and we had a long-running joke that the average attorney is not a deal maker. They're a deal killer, right? Like they're mm -hmm. literally paid to find reasons and exceptions and problems and debate it. They get paid hourly. And so it's very rare to find an attorney, in my opinion, that's actually understands the business principle and has that deal-making mentality. Um, so talk to us a little bit about sort of the nuances that are required when you're a real estate investor, both from an asset protection perspective, 
a business perspective, and then ultimately a tax perspective? Sure. So whenever you're working with someone, it comes down to under, you have to understand what is their business. And, and the best example I could give you is a client that I dealt with uh, about a year ago. So this individual, he's a local investor here in, here in Washington State, and he wanted, he's a flipper, and he wanted to set up a, a conference with me, he wanted to come into the office, uh, spend an hour with me and go over his proposed business structure. So I had him send in this asset questionnaire that I asked him to fill out a strategy session questionnaire. And I said, send me, you know, last year's tax return and then come on into the office and make sure you bring your checkbook, of course. And um, he came in and we sat down and I asked him, I said, you know, I understand that you buy and sell real estate. You've been doing it for three years. Tell me a little bit. Have you gone to a local attorney? Have you talked to anyone else about a structure? And he said, yeah, I went to a local attorney up here in Bellevue, and the attorney told me I should create a limited liability company for my investing, that if I do this, it will limit my overall liability exposure. If something goes wrong, I won't be sued personally. And he looked at me, he goes, what do you think about that? And I said, well, that's 100% accurate. I completely agree with, with that advice. If you're focused on limiting your liability, an LLC would do that for you. I said, well, what about taxes? He said, well, the attorney told me I needed to go see a CPA and he gave me a referral and I went and I talked to that CPA and the CPA looked at what I was doing and how much money I was making and he recommended I create an S corporation and he laid it all out for him. He said that if I set up an S corporation or have my LLC taxes an S corp, I'm going to save about $6,000 a year. And I asked him, I said, well, what do you think about that? He goes, oh, that, that's great. I could save six k And then he turned it around to me. He goes, what do you think? I said, well, accurate information. If you do exactly what those two individuals told you, you'll limit your liability and you'll save 6000 bucks a year in employment taxes. And then he looked at me and he said, well, I really don't understand why I'm spending money with you and time with you because you just verified uh, the information these other two professionals gave me. And I said, well, they gave you accurate information and I assume you're meeting with me because you want relevant information. And I'll tell you what your problem is. You can't deal with lenders. That is, you can't get traditional financing because of the way you're currently structured. That when you walk into a bank, they deny you loans. The guy looked at me and goes, how do you know this? I said, well, simple. I looked at your tax return. I go, anybody spending $24,000 a year in interest tells me they're using hard money to put their deals together. And you've probably gone into a lender before and asked them for a traditional loan and they denied it. And of course, you want to know, how do, how do you know they denied me uh, traditional financing? I said, well, it's simple. If I was in your situation, I had a house like you do with $600,000 in equity. I'd be tapping that equity to fund my deals rather than going down here and asking Guido for money at 12, 14% interest rates. I mean, come on, just do the math. That's at least a 10, 12% savings right there. So you do not look good to lenders. Now, you follow the attorney's advice and the CPA's advice, you'll get exactly what they promised you but they won't help your business. Would you like to be in a situation where you could go into a bank and then actually get a loan and get away from these hard money lenders? In order to do that, you have to change the way you appear to a lender. The way you're setting yourself up, it's not gonna happen because what they're recommending is you use a pass-through entity, an LLC taxes and S-Corp. And so you know the way it is, whenever you go in to borrow money, what is the first thing they ask for? A copy of your tax return. So you're gonna give them your 1040. Now what they're going to see on your 1040 is that you have your own business. And so this process of asking you, what does your business do, is going to come back up. And of course, banks are nervous to loan to real estate investors that are out there flipping property. And obviously, we want to kind of keep that on the down low. We don't want to tell them what we're doing, but you're not going to be able to do that because when they see your personal return, they're going to ask you for a copy of your business return because that 
LLC taxes and S Corp is going to kick you a K-1. And that shows up on your 1040. Now, once they see that and they ask for the business return, I can tell you where they're going next. They want to see profit and loss and they want to see balance sheet. And so it starts the snowball effect where it's every week, well, we need this, we need that. And eventually, you know, you think you're going to get the loan. They're probably going to deny you the loan because as a business owner, you're probably going to look to expense everything out that you can to reduce your taxes to the greatest extent as possible. What does that do to your borrowability? Well, it doesn't help you because now your corporation looks like it doesn't make very much money. And the bank asks you this. You say, oh, really, I make a ton of money, but I'm able to expense it out creatively. And they think, oh, now you cheat on your taxes. Great. We're going to loan you money. And so this is a culmination of not understanding the real estate investor's dilemma or his dilemma, which is he needs access to traditional. So what I proposed to him is I said, set up a C-Corp. Now, when I talk to people about using a C-corporation, you get that initial, you know, oh, C-corporation, they have dreaded double taxation. And what does double taxation mean? Well, yeah, it's a word that nobody wants to hear, that you're going to get taxed twice. But it really means you haven't figured out what the heck it is you're doing. When you set up a C-corporation, in this particular individual circumstance, what I told them, I said, jack up your salary. Take everything out of salary, expense out very little, because if you're pulling down $250 a year, you go into a lender, they're going to ask you, you know, what do you do? And you say, well, I'm an executive for a company. They're going to want to see your W-2. You're going to show them you're making $250,000 a year. Bam, you're number one on their list of who they want to loan to. Now you, your income can support the loan. They're not going to know that you're in business for yourself because with a C corporation, nothing flows down onto your personal return. And so... I ended it with them. I said, listen, you can adopt the uh, recommendation of this local guy and you're going to save $6,000. I cannot do that for you. You're not going to save $6,000 if you follow my advice. What you will save is probably $18,000 in interest. In interest expense, right. Exactly. I said, so, you know, that's how I would do it. And so that's what I mean by that third leg is the way I approach this is that I look at it from the individual standpoint and make a determination as what, where is your need? What can we do structure? How should we structure you to ensure that your needs are being met? Because there's more to it than just tax and asset protection. Right. Now, in that C-Corp um, C situation that you just outlined for us, they also have the same limited liability, right? I mean, absolutely. The protection of the corporation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? So they're not even that giving well. that up. Nope. Okay, so that's really interesting and helpful, and I think people sort of understand that three-legged stool, and I personally, uh, for years, have found people that are either strong at one and weak at the other, and to your point, I've bounced around between different professionals because nobody really seems to understand the holistic nature of my business or the, the goal. Mm -hmm. um, as it relates to short-term rentals in particular, because I think you know that the vast majority of our uh, listeners and the viewers on YouTube and so on are really interested in the short-term rental. Is there anything that's unique or peculiar or that you've seen work or that you've seen not work that um, we should talk about? Well, yeah, I mean, the number one problem for people in this space is taxation. Well, I mean, you've got city codes and, you know, how they're constantly changes and flux. you got to make sure that you know, you're not going to have um, the city come in and take $72,000 from you, which recently occurred in Las Vegas. Yeah, I read uh, and, about that. You read about that? Yeah, because the guy didn't, the neighbor pulled the permit before him with that 660 foot rule. I mean, that's, those are problems that, you know, you're just going to have to deal with and you're going to have to know what your local ordinances are when you're running this type of business and you're operating in this space. But 
What we can speak to is the aspect of the taxation. You know, how you're structuring your business. Because a lot of people, when they get started, what I've seen is maybe they get some asset protection in place. They might set up an LLC, but they don't realize that LLC is not going to provide them any benefit from a tax standpoint. And they typically figure this out when they go to file their tax return. Their CPA looks at what it is they're doing. And they say, you know, this is all self-employment income. Um, You're going to pay ordinary income tax, and then you're going to have to write another check for $14,000 in employment taxes. And now you're looking at going, where's the money coming from? Because I've got my mortgage and I've got my insurance and my property taxes. I don't have money for federal income taxes. It's because of the way you put together your structure from the outset. You didn't understand the nature of the income because the income that comes in from this type of activity is considered to be an active income in the eyes uh, or in the Internal Revenue Code because it's derived on a short-term basis from your activities. So that's good news and bad news, right? Like the it good is. news is to the extent that you have depreciation and or expenses, and let's say you show a loss, and I think in many circumstances, if people you know, are getting good advice, you can actually have a cash flow positive business mm-hmm. that shows losses after depreciation. And those losses, because it's an active business, if they have W-2 income as well, can offset some of that. Is that correct? Correct. They're going to have some benefit there, but... The way I look at it is, again, you're going back to that three-legged stool analogy. What is it do you want to accomplish with your structuring? Okay, the, the asset protection component of it, we can take care of that. Okay, we can set up an LLC, we can protect your property. But I want to know what do you want to do with your business from a tax standpoint, and where do you want to go? Do you want to keep buying property? Okay, great. If you want to keep buying property, then how do we want you to look when you go in to qualify for a loan? Do you want to be that guy that walks in who's a sole proprietor where the rental uh, activity shows up on their Schedule C so they know you're in business for yourself? And that makes people really nervous because they don't know what type of potential threats are lurking out there. They don't think, you know, a lot of times people are nervous to work with sole proprietors, that is lenders, because sole proprietors, historically, they don't plan for taxes. I mean, because they're not doing a really good job at documenting or you have a good books to account for their income. And all of a sudden it comes to April 15th and they're told, hey, you got to pay this. So what, what we typically would look at then is I'd say, all right, if you want to continue on with the buying more real estate and you want to look good to lenders, then I'm going to set you up with an entity, like I talked about, a C corporation, and we're going to pump your income. And we're going to keep that income flowing down to you in an active nature and go less with passive income. If you told me, well, I would rather have passive income, I'm going to back off buying real estate for now, then I would change the nature of how that income is is expensed out and then go more for a smaller salary and greater passive income stream. And the way we structure this is through contracting. I mean, you're basically contracting with yourself and putting in place certain types of agreements to uh, uh, account for what it is I'm describing. So it's basically a structure that you're setting up based on the individual's unique circumstances and what what it is that they're trying to do. Correct. Um, And I guess my question is, let's just take a step back and say, I'm new to the space, Clint. I'm just Airbnb, you know, my first property or maybe maybe even like a bedroom in my property. Um, do I need an LLC? Do I need an S Corp? It's just held in my personal name. Let's just start from the very beginning as people get um, started. What, sh- what do you think they should be looking at? 
Well, first off, what you should do is definitely protect yourself, okay? Because the property inherently has risk. There's just no doubt about it. You're bringing somebody into that property. Therefore, you owe them a duty of care. And the law has become twisted in the sense that, you know, it used to be when my grandfather was practicing law, you actually had to do something wrong in order to be sued. Now, I mean, the fact that somebody goes into your property, disables a smoke detector, lays in bed, lights up a cigarette or a joint, falls asleep, burns themselves up, and you didn't know about it because you didn't have working smoke detectors. Well, actually, you did, but they disabled them. You're still liable. I mean, that's a case right out of California. And this person was actually warned on multiple occasions. So you sit back and you think, you know, how do I prevent that from occurring? Well, you don't, unfortunately. People are going to do stupid things. And it's just a fact of doing business. Unfortunately, the law doesn't recognize that or hold people personally accountable for their actions. They tend to put the liability more on the owner of the business or the landowner to, to take additional steps to try to stop people from being stupid. But when they're in control, you know, you're stuck. So what do I do? I would tell you, you buy a piece of property, you should stick it in a limited liability company for the asset protection that entity provides. So at a bare minimum, you've minimized your risk. Teddy Roosevelt had this saying that went something that, you know, you know risk if uncontrolled could rise up and destroy you, but if it controlled, um, you can then basically minimize it. And, and that's the way I look at it. So if, if I had three properties, I'm not going to stick all three inside of one limited liability company because if one goes bad or something happens with a guest that's renting it, then all three properties are at risk. So I want to isolate my risk, minimize the overall risk exposure, use one LLC per property, especially when you have high turnover rate. When you have a lot of people coming in and out of that property, you know, it's, un it's different than when you have long-term rental situation. You know, you have one person you know, you get to know them, you vetted them more than you have with somebody that's you know, hitting you over the internet and wanting to rent your property. You have no idea what they're going to do there. And so as a result of that, your liability is much higher than it would be in uh, the traditional situation where you're just renting it out on a year uh, over year basis. So stick it in an LLC if something happens. I often refer to this as, you know, you take a steel line from Las Vegas. You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, I call LLCs boxes. What happens in the box will stay in the box. So it helps contain that. So if somebody hurts themselves, then that liability is gonna stay there and it should not hit you individually. So that's where everyone should start, is by creating an LLC in the state where the property is located. You don't need to get exotic here. You're not going to be using Wyoming, Nevada, or Delaware, because these LLCs need to be registered where the property is located in order to hold that real estate and rent it out. Now, once you've taken care of that aspect of it, then you need to look at your business and taxation. So I would first start with putting everybody into... Uh, LLCs or each of their properties into LLCs, bare minimum. Okay. And I think it's important, again, since these people may not have done this before, that there's a whole set of rules and guidelines in order to really have that uh, asset protection. You can't just create an LLC and then just, you know, write checks from your personal account and commingle assets and just continue to do things. Now you it's a separate entity, it's a separate business, and you have to you know, maintain it intelligently. And I'm sure you can work with people to understand sort of what those rules look like. And so like, for instance, one thing that I just um, learned, and I assume it's accurate, but you can verify it or not, is it's not enough to just have an LLC 
that LLC actually has to have a checking account associated with it, right? So like I had multiple LLCs and I had one that was commingled for all of my different properties and that's where the income came in and that's where we wrote checks, but I never opened up the LLC checking account at the individual property level and I've since done that. That's good. I mean, that's a good rule of thumb for everyone to follow because it helps keep the money lines clear. That is, you, you then have less of a risk of commingling and by uh, setting it up that way. I mean, I have clients that you know do not have bank accounts for each LLC, but they have really good bookkeeping. And so right. if they were ever challenged, they could whip out the books and you could see that there's no commingling of funds. We're not using money from property number three and LLC number three to cover the expenses in LLC number one. And, and what tends to happen if you don't have bank accounts set up for each of these LLCs, that's what people do. And then you run right into the issue you just raised where it, it is looked at as one common enterprise. And I had a client about eight years ago where she lost everything because she just had really shoddy business uh, and books. And when he sh one entity got sued, they took the whole trough down. She has 13 properties on that deal. Wow, okay. So at a minimum, people should have an LLC. Mm -hmm. um, and then in, in terms of um, growing their business, it sounds like you, you tend to feature the, the C-Corp and a W-2 income so that they can go and then apply for traditional loans and full recourse, right? They're going to have to mm -hmm. uh, personally guarantee the, the loan, but then they can go and grow and, and so on. And do you have any um, insight as to the banks and, and their, their lending for real estate investors? In other words, I've run into situations where they're like, well, this is your fourth property and this is your fifth property. And how many properties does one person need? Um, so what do, you th what do you see happening there? Hmm. Well, I see that Dodd-Frank has screwed everything up, and hopefully they're going to fix that problem, number one. Um, it's, it's frustrating. I mean, it depends on the lender, uh, on, on whether or not they're going, how many properties are going to allow you uh, to, to put under contract and get loans out under, that is. I mean, I've heard some people talk about 10 per individual. So I have uh, couples who, you know, husband will go on 10 properties and wife will go on 10 properties. But at the end of the day, there is no magic number. It comes down to that particular lending institution. So what I often tell people, you know, if you can work with a community lender. Uh, a lot of my loans in the past that I've used have always been with community banks because they're going to treat them as portfolio loans, which means they're not going to sell them. And if they're not selling them, then you have different criteria that will apply. They'll let you take title in an LLC, whereas a traditional letter of uh, uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, you're not going to do that. They won't permit you to do that because it's a residential mortgage. So you're stuck taking it in your own name and then having to deed it after the fact, which, you know, is fine. You know, there's always that do on sale clause that people get all hyped up about. But I haven't seen many banks ever exercise their right under the do on sale unless there's a reason to do that. But there could be title transfer issues if you're deeding it from your name into an LLC because of the county. So if you want it in the LLC, it's best to start by buying it in the name of the limited liability company. And that's where a community lender is going to shine over a traditional lender. Um, if you can, you know, if you're going to buy multiple properties, if you get to that point, then you start looking at institutional lenders where it's or asset-based loans. And then the playing field is completely different as far as they will just, you know, there's no personal guarantees involved. Um, 
you can buy in the name of a limited liability company. Typically, you know, in that case, you're actually going to use an out-of-state. You're using Delaware and then foreign filing in the state where the property is located. So it sounds confusing, and it can be, uh, putting these deals together. So if I was going out there to, to, to buy property and I'm, and I'm starting to grow my business, you're probably, I would suggest that you start with a community lender if you can find one open up an account there. The best thing to do is get a bank account open, put some money into it to show them that you want to do business with them. And if you show them that good faith, then they're most likely going to want to do business with you. And once you get that relationship going, you'll find that borrowing becomes much easier and account openings are really simple and streamlined. That's great. Okay. And then um, obviously there's been a lot of changes in the tax code, some good for... Um real estate investors, some not, they, they maintain the 1031. So that's a positive as people start to sell, they can tax defer and roll into other properties. One thing that um, I've heard reported a lot about, and I just would like to get your take on it is the reduced taxes at the partnership level. How does that, you know, the 20%, I guess, flat rate at the partnership level, how do you think about that as you structure real estate investors um, structures? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's great if it's there. If you can take it, um, you can do it. And I think, you know, a lot of investors are going to benefit from that 20% deduction, especially, you know, as you're buying property and you have sufficient basis in the property. The only problem with that rule is if you have older property, uh, fully depreciated, it may not work for you. So it is something that I think that a lot of people are going to benefit from going forward. I know I am uh, going to benefit with my real estate portfolio. But what I have noticed is that, you know, they wanted to simplify the code. I mean, this is actually a boon for, for my tax department now because right. it's anything but simple. I mean, there are calculations you have to run people through in order to determine what is the value of their deduction. And it's, it's you know, it's based upon income. It's based upon what you do. Uh, and it's also based upon property basis. It, so... It's not as straightforward as we'd like it to be. But yeah, you will benefit from it uh, in the majority of circumstances. You're going to get some deduction. Whether or not it's going to be the full 20% will depend on how it comes out. Okay, so it's a case-by-case -case basis, mm -hmm. but overall, it, it probably a net positive. Oh, absolutely, it's a net positive. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So what else is on your mind as you meet these 14,000 individuals? And I'd be curious to find out you know, what an average person looks like and how they like dealing with somebody that's perhaps remote. In other words, I don't think all 14,000 of them are in your backyard. No, not at all. Maybe 140 are in my backyard here in Washington. You know, so, so we have one office in Washington State, Tacoma, where I'm, where I'm out of, and then I have three offices in Las Vegas and one in Cheyenne. And I have, you know, I have several offices because I have over 150 employees. So Everyone that we deal with now, it's like this, all right? Uh, video conferencing, it's email, phone calls. There's no longer this feeling that people have that they need to sit down with their attorney and stare them in the face across the desk in order to put a deal together, especially when you're getting the you know the relevant information. Uh, it doesn't need to be in that traditional context. And so it's been, you know, we brought in most of our clients through education. One of the things that I'm keen on, when we started Anderson, my partner and I, we're not like traditional attorneys where we play hide the ball. My grandfather told me, I remember this because uh, he was an attorney, as I stated. He said, you're never going to make it as an attorney if you don't change the way you practice. Because what he noticed is that I would go out there and I would tell the clients everything they need to do. 
You know, they say, well, where do I set up the LLC? Here's where you set it up. Here's how you need to set it up. And I give them everything that they need so they could do it on their own. And he said, if you do that, they're never going to use you. My philosophy has always been they're still going to use us to set these things up because they don't want to do it themselves. All right. Your job is to go out and invest in real estate and run your business. Do you really want to be thinking about, you know, am I doing everything right with setting up my LLC? Is this a proper right. structure for me? You know, do I have the right provisions in there? And so to that point, though, by educating the client, okay, and bringing them and bringing them into the fold so they understand what you're doing, they become an easier client to work with. You know, the ones that I struggle with are the people that come through, you know, the, the Internet saw me, watched a video or something, and they want to get structured, but they haven't invested the time yet to truly understand what it is they're doing with them. Because they're going to go to their local CPA and he's going to say, well, why did you do this? Why did, would you set up a C corporation? I don't know. These guys from Las Vegas told me to do it. Oh, Las right. Vegas, there's your problem right there. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, um, but if they're educated, they can go back and they say, well, here's five reasons why I decided to set up a C corporation. What do you think about that? And it turns the table on the professional because professionals are so used to controlling the conversation. That is, you don't know what they know or they make you think that you don't know it. And therefore, they always remain in control of their client. My, our, our philosophy has always been, I want you to know everything and you'll become a better client that way. So that's, that's what makes us unique. And it also allows us to work with so many different clients across the country. And they do so many different things. You know, we have tr traditional business owners. I mean. Some of our clients, I'd probably say 5% of them are outside of the United States. We have clients from all over the world that invest in the U.S. And we set up structures for them, you know, to ensure that when something does happen, you know, they're not having to lose the entire farm over one lawsuit. Cool. So um, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm not a client and we've never mm -hmm. worked together and, and so on. But We're going to change that. One, okay, good. <laughs> well, so one, one, one issue that I always have when I speak to... Um, uh, professionals that I'm going to work with is this all sounds great, but what happens when I'm at the finish line about to close on a deal or I have a question or some tax hiccup comes, what sort of support and mechanism and communication is there in my time of need and not on April 1st as we're trying to file for April 15th, right? It's like, like what sort of checkup procedures and sanity checks are there along the way? Okay. So one of the things that we realized when we started Anderson is that the reason why people never or, or oftentimes don't seek attorney advice is because of what? I mean, you've had attorneys. Did, did you like calling them up? No. Why? <laughs> well, uh, hourly. Exactly. You're afraid of that bill. And you're, you think when you get the bill, I only talked to him for 20 minutes, but I have this bill here for an hour and a half worth of stuff. And people can never figure out how 20 turns into 1.5. And it's just the way attorneys operate. And so for that reason, most people never seek advice. They always come back later after a problem's already occurred. So we realized that in order for our clients to be proactive, we had to come up with a system that would make them feel comfortable to call us without that fear of opening up a bill at the end of the month and being shocked to find out how much they're going to get hit for. So, so what we've done is we have what it's called our platinum service where our clients, they, once they sign up for it, then they're billed $35 a month for unlimited consultation time. So they can call up, they never pay more than 35 bucks and they can get their questions answered. So I encourage our clients to say, listen, you got to be proactive because I don't know what you're doing. 
you need to call us. If you get a contract, you know, we'll review two agreements a month, send them in, we'll tell you what we think of the agreement before you sign it. You know, it's little things like that that frustrate me when our clients don't use it. Um, I just dealt with a client a couple months ago. She entered into a real estate joint venture. She was putting money in and the other partner said, well, listen, in order to make you feel comfortable about making this investment into this JV, I'm going to give you a deed of trust against the property, a second deed of trust. Well, she didn't call us about this, didn't have us review the deed of trust. Now that the guy's not paying, of course, she calls. And I said, send me over the deed of trust. Well, first thing I discovered when I look at the deed of trust, it's an improper deed of trust. It wasn't completed the right way because the other JV partner did it on his own. Uh, so he didn't know what he was doing. Number two, it was never filed against the property. So here's a situation where she has a messed up deed of trust, which we could have spotted right away had she at least sent it to us before she went through with this transaction. And then the second thing apart on that, I would have said, all right, and then you make sure that you file it yourself so that you know it's recorded against the property. Because this guy went out and did this with three other people. And now all of those were actually done properly and those are recorded ahead of her deed of trust. And she says, well, what should I do? Because they're getting ready to sell it and they're not talking to me. I said, file Liz Pendens on the property. And this is what you talked about earlier. You know, there are attorneys out there that most of them are all about covering their own butt and saying, all right, this is the way we have to do things. They don't think like a businessman would. I said, file Liz Pendens. She went to a local attorney because we can't do that. And he said, well, we can't do that because we haven't started a claim against them. And until you start a claim, you can't file Liz Pendens. That's just patently false. You can file Liz Pendens against them before you start your claim. Yeah, you may have some issues with slander or title. They could come back against you, but I'd rather at least secure my interest, get the money tied up, and then fight it out on the back end rather than let the guy sell the property and then go after him and never get a penny. And so, so that's really the, the difference in approach to how we do things and why we tell people, you know, call us before you put a deal together or, or you're you know, working with another party because you just don't know what you don't know. Okay, great. So tell us a little bit about your real estate um, investments. You said you have over 100 different properties. Mm -hmm. Are these long-term? Are they short-term, some combination? Where do you see opportunities? Okay, so everything now that I own is long-term. Uh, commercial, residential, it's all single-family. I don't have any multifamily. I thought about getting into the multifamily space last year, but it just seems to be that it's just a little overpriced for my flavor. So I, I backed out of it and I'm picking up single families and I'm looking in areas that have growth potential, that has stability uh, for rents. And um, they're just, you know, typically it's rock solid markets, you know, good stability there um, with employment. And then that's not all of them. I mean, some of them, you know, are lower income. We buy around colleges um, as well. And, and so there's kind of a mix uh, of, our, of our investing. We've done flipping before. So, so going back to that, so a lot of these are all single family. Right now I'm just closing on another uh, package of 30 properties in Houston. Um, it's gonna close next week. And they're all single family homes. You know, the cap rate on them is somewhere around eight and a half right now. But once you finance them, that's probably gonna bump up to around 10, 10 and a half percent cap rate. That's great. Uh, yeah, that's not bad at all. And they're consistent and they're fully rehab properties. And we're not talking properties that were flooded and now been rehabbed. This is right. I started this process before. And so I like single families. It's just I know some people that's not their space. But for me, that's where I've invested. So we have commercial as well. 
uh, in different areas uh, of the country. And that's worked out great in some instances. I've had problems before. I mean, I got this big warehouse down in Savannah. And when the market crashed, I was carrying $14,000 a month mortgage on that property for a good, I don't know, 14, 15 months till I got another tenant in there. And, you know, that, that's the tough thing I found with commercial. Uh, we flipped properties in Vegas for two years. After the market crashed, we were going and buying REO properties, and we, we did really well at that. But then the market started to get more competitive because then you had all these investors from California coming over and then driving up the prices of the homes. And so I wasn't able to get the return on the flips that I wanted. So I knew, hey, I'm done with this and I'm going to keep buying. I bought my first um, VRBO Airbnb property last year and uh, that's in Hawaii. And that's been going good. I made, um, what did I make? I made 65 grand off that last year in, great. in Maui. Yeah, I mean, it's, I was surprised how much income. Now it does well, come with some, come with some yeah. work, but uh, yeah, there's a great income there. Well, that's what we've been finding, and that's what uh, all of our you know listeners and viewers have been seeing, and that's the reason that I've moved entirely from long-term to short-term, is that we're seeing returns of about two and a half to as much as three times the rent roll versus a 12-month lease. And to your mm -hmm. point, there is more work, right? There is turnover and so on and so forth. But at two and a half times the rent roll, you're more than fairly compensated for that work. Yeah, see, I wish I would have found you prior to buying this property because this <laughs> last year has been a learning experience for me uh, in dealing with this, with this type of, you know, constant turnover, getting the phone calls. Because with this particular property, I can't turn it over to a, to a professional manager to handle it. Because if I did that, it's going to really cut into my profits. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I'm willing to deal with it. You know, when people call up, hey, the AC isn't working. Well, you see that controller? You mean the TV right. one? I said, no, the one that says AC on it. <laughs> right. uh, you got to push the green button. Yeah. It's just stuff like that where you just scratch your head. You know, what rock did they crawl out from under? But um, no, it's, it's, been, it's, it's been a nice little money generator for us, for sure. Yeah. Listen, there's ways to automate all that stuff. I don't use any professional uh, managers in any of my property. Mine are all remote, so they're mm -hmm. not in my backyard either. And in fact, I found that the ones that are closest to me are the most challenging because I never really outsource it thoroughly. And so when something does happen, I'm like, oh, I'll go fix it or I'll yeah. be right there. Right. <laughs> but when it's like in, in Maui, in your case, you can't just get there. Right. And so um, on our YouTube channel, we've given a lot of advice and, and tips and you might benefit from them. But as you start to grow your business more, um, it's at a point in time, I don't think the returns are going to stay at two and a half X, you know, forever. But mm -hmm. for right now, I think that my personal investment thesis, Clint, is that single family homes are mispriced, especially those that can be short term rented legally, mm -hmm. because people aren't pricing that, right? So it's like air rights back in the day when people were buying buildings for the air rights. And yep. only the people that knew how to value them, you know, they made a fortune. Um, so I'd be curious to hear as we circle back over time, if you've started investing a little bit more and, and seeking that same sort of return. Yeah, you mean, you know, doing this type of investing, what I found, as you know already, is you don't even have to see the property. I bought this property all over the internet. I never went there for an entire year, and I was making money off that property for the entire time. I, did, I didn't make it out there until December of this year uh, to actually, actually go through the property myself. And it wasn't a problem, which is, you know, amazing because a lot of people think that they have to physically go out and walk the property and see it for themselves at pictures. You know, you can't do it remotely. I found you can. 
I mean, a lot of my real estate has been remotely. Uh, I never make it out there. Well, that's a huge um, lead into what I always say to everybody, which is the biggest reason that people don't get started is they tell me that their condo doesn't allow it, their city doesn't allow it, whatever, right? Like there's all these mm -hmm. reasons that they can't do it. And what I've always said is exactly what you said is like, there's no rule that says you can't cross the state line or cross the county line or even go overseas. If you want to be a short-term investor and you're attracted to the returns and you like hosting people and so on, then find a place that's legal that has some meaning to you. In your case, it could be Maui. In my case, it's Crested View, Colorado. Um, and buy a place there. It doesn't yeah. have to be in your backyard or downstairs or across the street. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Um, the one thing I would do different is I'd buy a property that I would like to visit. And when I went out there, I realized I probably would never stay here myself. Right. Um, but uh, so that's that's how it would change it going forwards. But yeah, well, we're that's still a looking. really mm -hmm. yeah, that's a really important thing, and that's the other thing that I've continually said to everybody is figure out what your why is. So for me, the reason that I got started in these places is because these are places that I like to visit yeah. and I buy homes that I want to eventually spend more time in. And in the meantime, I'm short term renting it and allowing other people to pay my mortgages and buy it for me. Right. So like Mr. Kim, who visits for a week, he's buying my house for me. And I do that for 15 years or the mortgage duration that I have, especially at these low interest rates. And so if I do this for 15 years, I now have a portfolio of properties that other people have paid for. I have tax benefits. I go and visit them and fix them up and you know make sure mm -hmm. that there's a, there's a legitimate business purpose, have meetings, meet the architect and the contract and all that stuff, document everything. And it's a beautiful thing. Right. So to your point, um, there is a benefit in going and seeing the place if it's more than just an investment. Right. Correct. If it's a little bit, you know, you're going to use it at some point. But it's great that you did that. And I'd love to hear how you continue to grow your business. Yeah. And like you just brought up, I mean, with this type of investing, what you're teaching people is how they can buy a property and pay it off in half the time that most people will be paying off their houses because of the income that comes in from it. Exactly. So that's great. Yeah. Cool. So is there anything else um, as we finish up the podcast here that you think is particularly relevant to short-term rental real estate investors? Anything that we didn't cover that you think would be a great nugget for people to sort of start to think about? Well, what I would tell them is that we talked about the asset protection and we, and we just touched on the taxes. You know, there, there are ways to structure this where you can create what I refer to as a master lease agreement where you create a business and you take LLC, your LLC and you're leasing the property to your business and then your business is what's getting into the Airbnb space and then leasing it out. So then you have control over your income and that's where you can start. I'm not going to hate to use the word manipulate. That's where you're going to be able to use the tax code to your advantage. And so it's more than just about you know one entity, and that's what a lot of times people make the mistake in is they just set up an S corp or they set up an LLC, and they don't realize is that by using a combination of entities in your structuring, you're going to find that you can do a lot more planning and get a lot more benefit out of your rental income in ways that a traditional structure just isn't going to be able to work for you. That's amazing. Well, I know that you were kind enough to you included a, a landing page mm -hmm. uh, for people that are listening to this podcast and want to learn more about your firm. And I think you said you even included some videos that you've recorded in the Correct. past on short-term rentals. So why don't you tell us where people should go? We'll include the link um, in the description as well. But tell us a little bit about what you've set up and you know how they can contact you for more information. Yeah, if you just go to S-T-R-U 
AP, so short-term rental university asset protection, we just condensed it down, .com, uh, go to that website and then you can uh, register to watch our video series on short-term rentals. And we walk you through how those structures should be set up to, to address the, the master lease and everything that I started to touch on here from a tax standpoint and the important issues you need to be aware of when it comes to investing in this space from a legality standpoint, you know, how you're putting your leases together. Do you make sure they're not a, an actual uh, leasee that you want them to be a guest so they don't have any possessory rights to the premises and insurance issues that come up as well. So these are all important things that if you're getting into the space, you should learn about. And we've got some videos for you that you can watch and find out some more information. That's very cool. And I guess, um, a follow-up question is, as people contemplate doing all of this, I imagine that there's a, a burden, a switching cost, like, oh, well, I've always gone to this accountant, or this is my lawyer, and I don't want to reinvent the wheel and start over. How should people be thinking about that? If they're not happy or they're not getting great advice, what's the switching cost, if you will, that people should overcome? We haven't figured that one out yet. There really isn't. <laughs> I guess we should. No, what we do is we work with existing structures. So, you know, a lot of times what I find is this. People have got the first part of it set up right. And so they've got the asset protection. Now, it may not have been the way I would have set it up, but that's not going to stop us. I mean, because one of the strategies we like, we teach people is how to set it up anonymously. So, you know, tenants or people that are coming in, guests do not know where you are. If you don't want them to know how many properties you have, we can structure it in a way where they would never figure that out. Um, but even if you don't have it, you didn't set up that way, we still work with what you have because at the end of the day, you're still going to have asset protection. It's just putting on that additional layer. Many times it's just one additional entity and, and changing how you do your business can produce fantastic results. Cool. Well, look, I think this has been very helpful. You've got me thinking about a C-Corp um, and I'm going to continue that dialogue with you offline. But I really appreciate your time. Um, your thoughts, and also that website, struap.com, where you've created uh, a landing page and some extra videos for people to learn a little bit more. That's super helpful, and I really appreciate that. Absolutely. So that does it for another episode of the STRU Podcast. As always, all links mentioned are in the show notes below. And if you found this show helpful, please leave a review on iTunes. If you're serious about short-term rental investing, be sure to check out str.university. Till next time.